Hi there, I'm Rory O'Connor, Professor of Health Psychology and a Mental Health Researcher at the University of Glasgow. And I'm Craig, a filmmaker and content creator at MQ Mental Health Research. And welcome to MQ Open Mind, a podcast that brings together lived experience with scientific research to help us to better understand mental health problems. And we hope to do so in a way that is accessible to all. In this episode, we speak to the head of the Psychedelics Research Centre at Imperial College London, Professor David Nutt. David specialises in the research of drugs that affect the brain and conditions such as addiction, anxiety and sleep. Currently, David is investigating if psychedelic drugs can be effective against treatment-resistant depression. In this conversation, we discuss the stigma around drugs, alternative treatments for mental health issues and why openness is important in research and innovation. Welcome to the latest episode of MQ's Open Mind podcast. Um, Craig and I are delighted today. We've got really fascinating conversation, we hope, uh, which is forthcoming. And we've got our guest today is Professor David Nutt. And David is uh, Edmund J. Safra Professor of Neuropsychopharmacology and the the head of the Psychedelics Research Centre at Imperial College London. So welcome, David, and thanks for joining us on our podcast today. Great to be here. I see it's your 10th anniversary and I was there at the launch. So Ah, okay, yeah. Brilliant. So this will probably come out in and around the actual anniversary in the the autumn. So that's, um, yeah, excellent. So David, I was doing a bit of um, reading around you to your journey and I'll be really really curious to hear about your journey. So I think it's, it's gone from Bristol to Bristol, Cambridge, Oxford, then you did Bethesda and Wash outside Washington, and back then to Bristol and then to Imperial. Mm-hmm. So, can you maybe tell us maybe tell us a bit about your journey then, and what maybe I suppose what we're interested in the podcast is where your sort of interest in sort of mental health and psychiatry came, and then obviously the work you've done since. I could point you to my autobiography, but it's <laughs> not uncut. You can read all about it, but very very brief, Pracy. Fascinated in about science when I was ten at junior school, when they showed us the uh, how you detected the power of atmospheric pressure. Became fascinated by the mind when I was about sixteen, seventeen, starting my A levels, listening to people like Gray Walter talk about uh, EEGs and how you can measure things going on in the brain. Went to university to do natural sciences at Cambridge, but just uh, realised before I turned up, I would rather do medicine than, uh, than zoology. So I switched to medicine because it was uh, easier to, to, to study what I wanted to study, which was humans. Trained in medicine at Guy's Hospital and at St. Mary's Hospital. And I went back into research where I've been ever since. Um, started off doing neurology, got bored with that, moved to psychiatry. That's infinitely fascinating. And, you know, you never saturate your um, your knowledge base with psychiatry. And gravitated towards pharmacology because mm-hmm. the, the explanatory power of neurotransmitters and receptors is just overwhelming. I was trained at Cambridge by people like Jimmy Mitchell, who discovered GABA as a neurotransmitter, and Les Iverson, who discovered noradrenaline uptake sites. So, always been fascinated by the explanatory power and of course then subsequently the clinical utility of drugs uh, and that's what I've done ever since and my sort of claim to fame I think is that I've probably given more different kinds of drugs particularly uh, uh, brain acting drugs particularly illegal drugs to humans than anyone alive maybe ever no one's ever challenged me on that anyway <laughs> well is that yes yeah, so I suppose it's a claim to fame of some degree certainly but I think you're I think from what always has impressed me in the work the work you've done is 
everything you do is obviously evident. It's in the pursuit of science and knowledge and therapeutic benefit, but it's all grounded in. So you made that sort of flippant remark about giving drugs to lots of people, but it is to build the evidence base. And, and I suppose maybe that brings me on to sort of the, I suppose maybe the next sort of question, which is like there is so much scaremongering. Um, I don't know if scaremongering is the correct term, um, but a lot of concern about some of the work that you and other, and your colleagues have been involved in over the years. Mm-hmm. And I suppose um, it's maybe to get your sense on, well, why why do we think it has been the, the sort of risks versus harms versus benefits have, have yeah. been sort of arguably taken out of proportion? Well, that's another book. It's called Drugs Without the Hot Air. Uh, <laughs> that's because drug policy is largely deliver- driven by political expediency, which goes back, interestingly, right back to the turn of the last century, the Hague Convention, when pharmaceutical companies realized that they could patent primitive derivatives of endogenous, endogenous natural compounds. You know, they could turn morphine into codeine or heroin and get patents and control the market. So they wanted to eliminate the natural products. Uh, so that, that was the beginning of the, the the whole sort of IP control. And then, and then of course, the prohibition of alcohol in America and Scandinavia in the 20s, uh, which led to um, major problems that, of course, like the mafia, the rise of the mafia, which led to the abolition of, of prohibition in 1933. But at the same time, it led to the growth of the drug enforcement agency in the States and the repeal of Alcohol prohibition was going to make 335,000 people unemployed. So they had to come up with some other drug to be worried about. So they invented the fears of um, cannabis, called it marijuana. And then basically the, the war on drugs has been perpetuated through the need to keep those people employed and the need to get particularly Republican politicians elected. Although I have to say the Democrats have also been pretty reprehensible. So American policy of using drugs as a way of getting votes uh, and the war on drugs, particularly from Nixon, and the fact that all our drug laws have been made at the behest of the Americans means, and as have all the drug laws around the world in the UN and the WHO. So the bottom line is you know, drug policies are politically and economically driven rather than scientifically driven. And that is that is both outrageous, immoral, and also extremely destructive because mm-hmm. there are many drugs that are really useful. Drugs like medical cannabis, which have been around for four to five millennia, drugs like psychedelics, which were proving really very effective in the 50s and 60s, they've been denied to the public, to the sick public for the last 50 years, which is absolutely, I mean, mm-hmm. totally. It's the worst censorship of research in the history of the world. And uh, and I, you know, I've rebelled against that. You know, I don't, I think uh, we I think if one thing science should do is at the very least challenge those kind mm-hmm. of misperceptions and, and political decisions. But then in that context, then, so in terms of trying to get funding for your research, I know, so there, because obviously the challenge then is when you're funded by pharmaceutical companies, there's obviously mm-hmm. um, risks and challenges there in terms of access to data and all and whatever uh, vested interests. So how, how have you dealt with that bit of it? And then also trying to get funding from other organizations independent of drug companies? We've taken a sort of multi-track approach. So one of the things I've um, got quite good at is uh, writing grants to explore the harms of drugs. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And of course, that requires studying drugs. So we've done an enormous amount of work, uh, particularly using brain imaging to explore questions yeah. like the nature of addiction, the nature of alcohol addiction versus heroin addiction versus cocaine addiction. So so that's given us the, the framework of the brain research. But to study more challenging drugs, particularly um, drugs like MDMA and uh, and psychedelics, we've largely gone to philanthropists uh, because um, particularly in America, there are quite a lot of very rich people who who believe possibly correctly that the use of psychedelics is why they became visionaries and uh, and very successful. And 
Silicon Valley is full of people who've made ridiculous amounts of money and um, are very sympathetic to the idea that psychedelics were part of that. And you know, when you think, you know, I'm talking to you on my Airbook Mac and uh, uh, Steve Jobs, you know, Steve Jobs built the biggest company the world's ever known based on having a trip in which he realized it was possible to fuse art and computers. <laughs> and he's I n- like, <laughs> never didn't hear that story before. No, yeah, I know absolutely. He says his LSD trip was one of the five most important experiences, and it's it's thought that in fact, you know, the idea that you know his what what is the Mac vision? The Mac vision is have is to have beautiful engineering rather than just functional engineering, and that accords extremely well with most people. Most people like beautiful things, particularly if they can tell you where you are and where you've got to go, and you know what your heart, you know, all those sorts of things. So, and of course, you know, history. You know, there are many. Many very famous people who've used psychedelics to uh, change the way they um, view the world. I mean, Francis Crick, of course, our Nobel Prize winner, is uh, perhaps the most interesting example in my mind because it, you know, he cracked the DNA code with Jim Watson, and um, and that was in the 1950s. And late in the late 50s, he discovered LSD and realised actually that was a simple question. You know, solving DNA that was actually a pretty trivial question. The big problem was solving the mind. And he went to the states and. Spent the last 20 years of his life trying to understand the nature of the brain. Um, mm-hmm. Unfortunately, you know, the tools, he didn't have the imaging tools to um, yeah. to do that. But he but he, he wrote some interesting theories and some of his ideas are you know still relevant today. Yeah. But on that, you mentioned the imaging, the, the brain imaging work. And obviously that's a really key plank of the work that you're doing now. So so what so if somebody said to you, a, a, a non-scientist said, what what is imaging? How has imaging advanced our understanding of addiction, say, or the harms, or the mechanisms of effect with drugs? What would you? How would you answer that? <sighs> that's well. That's just a trivial question, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm just I think, well, 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 okay. In terms of to give it two or three examples for somebody <laughs> who knows about brain imaging but doesn't know what it is. Okay. Well, let's start. Let's start with a simple piece of imaging. Let's start at what you call volumetric imaging. How? Let's look at changes to the brain. Well, one of the things we've discovered, and in fact, it was discovered even before we had modern imaging in the old days when we used to inject air into people's uh, CSF and measure the size of their brain using uh, just uh, x-rays. We knew that uh, the brains of people who are you know, very alcohol dependent are shrunk. Mm-hmm. And we can see that categorically. When we when we do studies of alcoholics, we find that many of them have brains which look like Alzheimer's brains. They're as shrunk and as shriveled. In fact, they're the, they're the only group of drug-using patients that actually do have obvious morphological changes to their brain. So that's the first thing. Alcohol, it can be very damaging to the brain, not just the, the poison of alcohol or the glutamate toxicity in withdrawal, but also the fact that, of course, people often get head injuries as a result of being drunk and falling over and getting beaten up. And then we can look at the chemistry. I mean, a lot of my work has been focused on the neurochemistry of addiction and we can address that you know in a very sophisticated intimate way by doing pet imaging positron vision tomography and you can show that you know there are disorders uh, of the release say of endorphins in in many addictions and we now think that part of the underlying pathology of addiction is uh, an, a, a disruption of the endorphinergic state. So, for example, we know that in, with particular challenges that release endorphins, addicts have subsensitivity to those challenges. So the normal kind of uh, intervention, which most of us would get pleasure from through the release of endorphins, doesn't happen in people who are addicted. That system has become atrophied or, or blunted. And we believe that people, many people become addicted to a particular drug because that's the one drug that actually does turn on that system. 
So, so that's a it's a kind of explanatory um, mm -hmm. aspect of the nature of the development of addiction itself. And then we can add to that looking at functional imaging with MRI. We can look at the circuits. We can look at the reward systems. We can look at to what extent uh, in different addictions are associated with different perturbations in reward liking or impulse control or mood dysregulation. So we can actually build up, you know, quite sophisticated profiles of, of individuals um, based on brain imaging. And so then moving on to the psychedelics research center, then the, so when, when did you establish that and, and what, what, what work are you doing within the psychedelics research center at the minute? Yeah, so the center was founded five years ago. It was founded based on uh, about 10 years of work, which I started at Bristol University and then carried on here at Imperial. We moved to we moved the team to Imperial just to have better access to imaging. I've been imaging from Bristol for the, since the mid-90s, early 90s, but it's, it was getting a bit tedious trucking up and down the motorway with patients, especially when the trains stopped running. So so we moved, we moved the whole team to Imperial and um, uh, and uh, became very successful. Mike, so one of my star PhD students, a guy called Robin Carhart-Harris, uh, became quite well known for the, the work we did on uh, psilocybin imaging and psilocybin treatment of depression. And uh, he's a very captivating individual. He charmed some of these rich Americans and they gave us money to set up the center. Mm -hmm. uh, as I say, it's been going for five years. The challenge, of course, is to keep on raising the money now that he's gone to America. There's a lot. Most American universities now have their own psychedelic research centers and they're sucking all the American money to them rather than. To, so we're, we're a little bit farther away than uh, from the sort of main uh, the main beating heart of philanthropy in Britain. But, you know, we're working on it. Yeah. And so, so were you one of the first psychedelics research centers in the world at the time? We were the first. We were the first. The, the very the first. Yeah. OK. And uh and and then so then in terms of the evidence for psilocybin then, mm -hmm. so what what does the evidence tell us about its effectiveness in terms of treatment of depression? Well, maybe if I just sort of preface that a little bit by saying, as I, I, I said earlier on, you know, what I, what my expertise is is giving drugs to people and seeing what they drugs do in their brain. Yeah, the work that Robin and I did on imaging psilocybin, LSD, DMT, was driven largely by you know the question. What are those receptors? Why is your brain full of serotonin 2A receptors? And what we know that we knew that psychedelics stimulate those receptors. So, but what is the link between stimulating the receptor and having a psychedelic experience? And we discovered that that link was a profound perturbation in rhythmic brain activity, a, a complete disruption of synchronous brain activity, a fragmentation of activity, producing what we call the entropic brain, a very, very chaotic form of brain activity turns out that that uh, chaos can be useful in breaking down patterns of thinking which are abnormal in disorders like depression and it was that discovery that led us to do the depression studies and to mm -hmm. our delight uh, it turned out that you can disrupt the mm -hmm. competitive negative thought loops in depression you can break those you can and you can put the brain, that's like a reset. You can put the brain back into a, another way of working, a more efficient and more flexible and more um, desired way of working. And now, and we're now we've been rolling it out into other disorders where, again, people get locked into mindsets like, like, like anorexia, like OCD, even like pain syndromes where people cannot stop having that mental experience. And we think psychedelics can disrupt it and help them escape. So, but do we do, do we know the longer term benefits? You said it, it changes the, whatever, the ways of thinking and so on. But do we know yet whether those changes happen or are, are sustained over the longer term? Well, we don't know whether the um, 
physiological measures in the brain are, but we've but we certainly know that the psychological changes are because in our first depression study of the 20 patients, and these were patients with treatment resistant depression, they'd all failed on at least two antidepressants, some had failed on 10, they'd all failed on CBT. About a quarter of them are still well 10 years later. It's like they've reset, they're no longer depressed. Yeah. It's yeah. like a core. And that is the most powerful. I mean, that study was the most powerful outcome in treatment-resistant depression from a single intervention ever. A single psilocybin intervention is as powerful as four weeks of ECT. And it's way less expensive and way more patient-acceptable because yeah. it doesn't destroy the memory. So the, but, so the long-term effects can be permanent, uh, probably. But for most people, and these were difficult to treat people, their, their depression begins to creep back. And that tells us something really important. It confirms what we've all known for a long time, that if depression gets entrenched in your brain, possibly as a result of childhood trauma or chronic trauma, it can be very difficult to ex extirpate, to get rid of. So mm -hmm. we're now looking at ways of, of trying to maintain wellness after that period most of the effect is, you know, we still get significant effects even at six months, but the tendency is for the depression to creep back, especially in people who've had chronic depression, repeated episodes of depression. So would this uh, area of research be useful for people who have like experience of drugs? So let's say like uh, someone who is uh, has some previous addiction, could they use could they use this type of treatment? Indeed, they could. And in fact, there are studies that have now there two major studies, one to help people stop smoking mm -hmm. and one to help people stop drinking. And they both show big effects of just one or two psilocybin doses over a course of six months to help people get mastery over their of those two addictions. And in fact, the smoking study is was so remarkable with something like 70% of people stopping completely for six months. It's, there's never, it's way more powerful than any other uh, intervention to stop people smoking that for the first time in 55 years the u.s national institute of health is funding psychedelic research mm -hmm. wow. we by the way i want to give a little plug to us so you know we've we're particularly interested in as i've mentioned already in opiate addiction um, and alcohol addiction now the alcohol work has been done in the states but we're setting up we've got charitable funding to start a pilot study in heroin addiction because it would be wonderful if we could help people who would spend their whole life fixated on and craving heroin could actually just be helped to sort of get out of that thought process to get out of the addiction and that study is going to start in the new year and i'm you know I, you know i'm obviously very hopeful and if it does work it's going to be a major breakthrough because you know we've got year on year we've got more and more deaths from people using opiates and it's going to get worse with the, the influx of these very toxic fentanyls from the states yeah, absolutely. And in terms of other work then, so in within your center, what other psychedelics work are you doing? Yeah, well, so we have we had two sort of profiles. The first was we wanted to compare the brain effects of as many psychedelics as possible. So we've done really the the definitive imaging work on psilocybin, on LSD, on DMT. And uh, and now we're starting the first detailed analysis of the um, the drug called 5-methoxy-DMT, which is part which you can get from toad. It's a sort of toad venom, which is a very, extremely powerful. It's often called the god molecule. It produces very profound, uh, uh, very fast transitions into altered states of consciousness, often to different uh, people going into different dimensions, different 
different universes. So we want to know whether there are differences between the um, the brain imaging, the brain signatures, the brain prints of these drugs. And that's a kind of interesting scientific question. We, um, but we're, we're also on the clinical side. We want to know how widely we can utilize the, the psychedelic effects. So now, so my team will be part of the team that have done the first depression study with DMT. Now, DMT is the active ingredient in ayahuasca, as, which you can drink ayahuasca because it's got DMT plus uh, an ingredient called harmaline, which is a monoamine oxidase inhibitor. Uh, that prevents the breakdown of the DMT by the gut and the liver. So you can actually drink it. It gets to the brain. Now, we, we're not allowed to use that in, in the UK because it's no one knows exactly what this plant combination is. So we've used intravenous DMT. Mm -hmm. We produced a sort of 20 to 30 minute trip. And they've my team has shown that that can produce, um, again, quite powerful reductions in depression scores. Mm -hmm. that's actually beginning to challenge some of the conceptions we had up to that point we thought that maybe the four to five hour experience that you have with psilocybin where in which people have enormous amount of psychological experiences they go into many many aspects of their past life uh, and we used to think that that was actually really central to reframing their attitude to their illness now we're beginning to wonder well maybe just a 20 30 minute trip can also somehow kind of reset a lot of those processes. So that's actually quite an interesting intellectual challenge. You know, what what is the optimal way? What's the optimal duration of the trip? So we're exploring that now. Oh yeah, and and then have you been doing any work on ketamine? And because obviously in the suicide field, obviously it's a lot of interest. But most of the work I'm aware of the ketamine field is not on the understanding the mechanisms of effect, but rather moving from the therapeutic impact of it. So have you been do, done any of the sort of basic science work on? On ketamine. Uh, yeah. Um, and that's the problem. You you hit the nail on the head there, Rory. The problem with ketamine is that people have been using it without understanding it. Well, I mean, because I was just curious. I knew, I, I'm unaware of reading any paper about that, about the sort of that basic science stuff. Not in humans. It's, I mean, there are, there are studies. There was a study from Vienna which shows it does disrupt the networks in a similar way to psilocybin. We're, we're just completing a study now using a, a new PET probe called UCVJ, which is actually a, which is a PET probe that looks at synaptic vesicles and is a measure of the density of synaptic vesicles and can be used in theory, at least in animals, to measure the production of new synapses. Mm -hmm. And so we've just finished a ketamine study where we've looked at the uh, whether there's a change in the density of this tracer. We predict it will go up. As, as you get new synapses formed. But we've also um, done a been collaborating with uh, a group at Oxford to see whether when you, um, you can rapidly change synaptic density. Well, no, so you can rapidly change function in the brain. For instance, if you just tape a couple of fingers together so you can't move your fingers, you can you can get changes in the motor cortex. And we're, we've done that as well to see whether you get those changes and whether you can reverse them with ketamine. So that work is coming to fruition. That'll be finished, finalized by the end of this year. And then uh, we're planning then to move on to start looking at DMT. Because mm -hmm. there is a general feeling that ketamine probably doesn't produce as enduring, as powerful neuroplasticity effects as uh, the psychedelics, which is why you tend to have to use for depression, use ketamine you know, repeatedly, maybe twice a week for four to eight yeah. weeks. Whereas DMT or you know psilocybin can produce a profound effect after a single dose, so we're interested in comparing those two psychedelics to see whether we can get a better handle on why they differ in terms of their duration of action. Well, what's the space then? Obviously, to see see what comes out of that. But, uh, 
of a particular interest in the work that we do and obviously these novel the new treatments for depression obviously both psychological and or and obviously pharmacological so just to follow up on that point you made rory though i mean you know there are people who i don't know if you are but there are groups uh, in the states who are using ketamine a short uh, administration of ketamine to people who are in a and e department yes yeah suicide and sort of that's kind of resetting that that's a very it's a similar conceptual model to resetting the brain in disorders like depression it, and it's completely plausible that psychedelics might do it better mm-hmm. than yeah. ketamine. so so you, you know we, if when you're ready we'll help you do the study <laughs> I won't be doing the ketamine studies. I'll stick to my psychology. No, but no, it's just curious because obviously the, the short-term effects in some of the studies look certainly promising, but it's just, again, going back to an earlier point, A, understand the mechanism, and then B, the longer-term effects, because we just don't know what the longer-term effects are yet, and I suppose... Well, well hang on, Rory. Rory I, I'm a bit hesitant. I, I want to... I get asked this question a lot. Oh, yeah, yeah, break it. You know, this is all really exciting. You know, how do you know in five years' time people won't grow a third head from taking a, a psilocybin trip? And I can say they won't. And I can tell you that because the ancient Greeks were using psychedelics 3,000 <laughs> years ago it, it, in an interesting combination with alcohol, and they didn't seem to suffer any long-term consequences. There are 40,000 patients, registered patients in trials in the 50s and 60s, mostly with LSD, uh, some with psilocybin. They didn't show any long-term problems. I think we can put to bed the idea that there's going to be a sudden emergence of a nasty, toxic uh, corollary of using these drugs. I, I, that is something that the the anti-drug lobby use a lot. There's a lot of people, are, you know, people are trying to stop this happening because they don't want to admit to the fact that for 55 years, we've, the people have been scared off these drugs and uh, and they won't want to accept that they're wrong. So, yeah, I'm f- absolutely confident that long, you know, we won't find any long term adverse effects because we would have discovered them a long time ago. Yeah, no, I know. I, and that's that's a, I totally respect that, that point of view. I, I, my point is, I suppose, is a broader point about looking at. The trials thus far have only shown any efficacy in a very short-term context. That, that's really what I, what I mean. But then we have to hold psychological treatments to the same, uh, compare the risks and harms of psychological treatments as well as pharmacological treatments. I think we have to have an even playing field. So no, it was just... It, it wasn't... It's very rare for a psychologist to say that. Well done, <laughs> Rory. <laughs> no, it was... well, I'm trying... Anyway, let, let's, let's just... You're an honest man. I, I wouldn't... I, that's why you're doing the podcast. They trust you. <laughs> well, I don't know about that, but um, no, but no. I think I think it's a, we know there are harms. Well, Rory, I want to say a bit more about this because I think okay, go Fair. I've been teasing you because I've been sort of rehearsing and regurgitating the the old, you know, where psychiatrists versus psychologists. The great thing about psychedelics is that it brings them together. Because you know, I, I, you know, there is no question whatsoever that we what we are looking at is a psychological change as well as a yeah. brain, mm-hmm. and we can maximize. We can use psychological inputs. So all those people that were that had failed CBT for their depression before psilocybin, it's perfectly plausible they could get benefits from it after you flip their mind into a state where they could use it or they could even engage with it. So. I'm I'm really I like the term psychedelic psychotherapy. I like the idea that we're bringing the, our two disciplines together because we need to because the, the demand is enormous and we yeah, and you know we can't neither of us can actually handle it all ourselves. So 
I think this is the way of, of doing of doing psychotherapy. Well, that's I mean, but that's the ethos of MQ as well. well. Our whole approach in MQ is it's to break down silos, and because the only way we're ever going to really make meaningful change in terms of mental health science and the treatment is by working obviously collaboratively across disciplines. And indeed, earlier this year, I led co-led uh, this Gone Too Soon project, which um, MQ led on with my a colleague, Carl Worthman, and we brought together experts, 40 experts from five continents. And we're, what we're, and we're trying to understand what are the priorities for mental health, basically to reduce mortality, early mortality or premature mortality for mental illness and the comorbidities associated with mental illness. And one of the key messages was de-siloization. We've spent too long in our silos and it helps nobody. So we're, we're, we're from the, speaking from the same hymn sheet, David, I think, but it just... Well, I'm really pleased. It's great. Yeah, but you talk about the ten year with a ten year anniversary of MQ. Maybe what brings me on is thinking ahead then from your work, right? So, in the next ten or twenty years, where do you think we'll be? Like, because we move on a second to policy challenges, but where do you think we'll be in in terms of the treatment or both the understanding and treatment, and 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 the role of psychedelics? Oh, they 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 will revolutionize psychiatry. They will revolutionize the treatment of any internalizing disorder, whether it's depression, eating disorders, whether it's uh, addictions. Uh, there are already studies now in body dysmorphic disorder. It, they, they have the potential. They, they will be transformational, I think. Um, and they're also fascinatingly, in, the neuroplasticity is now being evaluated at sub-psychedelic doses in, in neurological disorders like stroke. So this is a this is a whole new branch of medicine, which is very exciting. I think. Yeah. It, most Western countries will have adopted psychedelic therapy within five years, I think. Oh, well, as recent, as soon as that? Australia. Australia did last month. Wow. Last month, the Australian government um, approved psilocybin for treatment-resistant yeah. depression that had failed on two other treatments, one of which was a drug and one of which could be a drug or could be psychotherapy. Yeah. But was there not, did I, was there not some contra- controversy over that because they not... Did, did they go against the recommendations? Or I, I only remember reading this in the media, the recommendations of an advisory group or something? Well, it was interesting, yes, because there were psychiatrists that didn't want it to happen. And there were psychotherapists that didn't want it to happen. But the, the, the government, the, the their equivalent of RMHRA said, look, we, we lose one first responder, that's a fireman or a, a policeman or a paramedic, every day to suicide. And... The, the potential benefits of psilocybin surely outweigh any potential risk. So, the, so they were kind of overruled. The TGA took a pragmatic view that you know we know we know a lot about these drugs. We know how they work, and we know they're pretty safe. If you, they're only you know if they're used in settings, if they're used in approved, and that's a very interesting thing about the Australian model too. Very the first is that the therapist, the doctor, has to get approval from an ethics committee that they have competence, and the second is uh, that the the drug has been provided by a charity. And so here's an interesting question for MQ. If you had enough money, would you provide it rather than wait for a pharmaceutical company to come and provide it? And I'll let you think on that. But if the answer is yes, get back to me soon. I'll ask my manager. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Thankfully, that's above our pay grade. Um, so to answer that question, David, just because our time is, is marching against us. But, so David, I want to just ask you a bit of, about, because you've had a lot of experience of, trying to influence policy and working in policy in, in the UK and, and the doubt internationally as well. What could we be doing better? If you just think more about any aspect of mental health science or psychiatry or whatever area it is, 
from your experience, what could we be doing better to really influence policymakers more directly or more effectively? Well, yes, that, the, the important thing, I think, is keep banging the drum about evidence. I mean, we've talked about ketamine, haven't we? And, you know, ketamine, in a way, was the first real breakthrough in depression treatment for, for 40 years and a different way of acting, the first psychedelic. And yet it's not approved by NICE. Mm-hmm. And that that is wrong. And that is because it's been they've set barriers and hurdles which they wouldn't set to any other treatment because it's a horse tranquilizer because it's a psychedelic and patients want this. Even the Royal College of Psychiatrists isn't usually that uh, vocal a, a group with campaigning for it. But there's an anti-psychiatry uh, a movement in this country which is actually very powerful and it permeates even into Parliament where there are they're kind of anti-psychiatry groups there. And you know, I mean, that's one of the reasons I'm a great fan of you guys, MQ, because you know you are a, a you know a truly independent voice of reason. People don't listen to me because they think I'm, you know, I've been banging on about policy for so long. I'm biased, but but you're not biased. So mm-hmm. you know, really stand up, stand up for the evidence and stand up for the patients who are being denied access to these treatments. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then if you want something concrete, get psychedelics rescheduled, get psilocybin moved out of schedule one, which says it can't be used into mm-hmm. schedule two where it can be used. Yeah, well, yeah, be interested to see what happens in that regard. So just we're going to bring this sort of um, slowly or quickly to well slowly to a close uh david is so can you so obviously you have a book out which i can see behind you behind whatever is your shoulder there we go and it's on psychedelics so do you want to so what was the aim of the book the purpose of the book and um yeah so tell us a bit about the book this is the third in a series i was contracted to write three books one on alcohol which is called drink question mark one on cannabis seeing through the smoke and the third was on psychedelics and they all serve at the they all serve the same goal, which is basically to tell the truth about drugs and not to be promoting them, not to be hostile to them, to lay down for the educated public reader what the truth is, what the evidence is, mm-hmm. and how they can think, you know, to allow them to have a, a, make a proper decision as to what they're going to do, either personally or in terms of, you know, which kind of groups they might support if they want to look for change. Uh, and that's available in all... Well, all, all three good bookshops, absolutely, good in all good bookshops, and also on the web. From, uh, from Yellow Kite Books. Excellent, excellent. And so just uh, before, we, we we usually end the podcast with a couple of sort of unrelated questions. I'll come to those in a second. But is there any sort of key message that we haven't discussed with regard to the work that you do or um, or hope to do, um, which you would like to add before we, we sort of bring it to these last two questions? I'm going to give a, a little bit of a more of a, a shout out for PET scanning. I mean, we we led we the first brain PET scan was done in Britain. We led the world. The MRC cyclotron unit, which is where I why I went to Imperial to work, was absolutely world leading. Well, we've lost the plot to some extent. You know, in the same way as we've lost the plot, in, we were world leading in psychedelic research ten years ago. We don't invest in our cutting edge technologies, and that is disappointing. And you know, there is PET imaging is potentially transformational it's expensive and that's why we don't invest in it but but that that, you know that it's a false economy so i'm gonna say that we really should be properly investing in innovation in in that technology we're brilliant we're world leading at mr as well we got the nobel prize for that but but we all you know the fact is it's not one or the other we can't ignore the the need for pet just because we're good at mri yeah but i think that's a wider point i think if you look over the last 10 years, the lack of investment, relative lack of investment, investment in the infrastructure required to conduct high quality, world class, world leading 
mental health science and tre treatment. We we just are falling okay. behind, and okay. we just need to that needs to be prioritized more. And yeah, I think it is a big concern, a huge concern. And yep, PEP is one example, but lots of examples. We just need more investment in infrastructure for mental health science. Well, I mean, you know, we you know, I know, most any person that reads the evidence knows that the burden of mental health illness is is the it's a bigger burden than diabetes and cardiovascular disease yeah, yeah. put together. Yeah. And the investment is less than half of either. So, you know, it is completely disproportionate. And, and, and that's, I'm afraid, is a political attitude. But most politicians are very tough, resilient people. And they, they believe everyone is like them. And they don't understand that very few people are like them. Thankfully, most people aren't like them. Otherwise, it would be even worse world. But, but uh, yeah, well, uh, well I'm, I'm not going to comment on that. But the, the um, one last point on, I was just watching, there was a Newsnight programme on, on the BBC last night, and it was on the university sector. And uh, in the context, obviously, obviously of the um, UCU uh, marking boycott and the strike and obviously the working conditions and so on. But one of the messages, that would, one of the slides I show, which really highlights his point, which is, the cross subsidization of research at universities. So our research, I mean, we, we, the cost of our research has mostly been, not mostly, but it's certainly to a certain degree been subsidized by us increasing the number of international students to the mm -hmm. UK. And that highlights the fact that we, we're just not doing the investment in, in science in general and research in general, but I would make the case specifically for mental health science. I would utterly support you. And anytime you want me to beat that drum, I will. I, <laughs> I have confronted ministers in the past about it. <laughs> and if I'm any use to you, I will do it again. Well, but the thing is, it's a, it, it makes sense. And so economically, it makes sense to invest. But anyway, we don't need to rehearse. Well, I'll just, Rory, be, probably before you even, you know, were not born, but certainly 20 years ago, there was a very high level meeting with the Department of Employment and the Treasury. And they knew, we all said the big, the, the burden of un, of depression in terms of the un, unemployment and the the, 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 the costs uh, of keeping people, you know, on social security is fast. Yeah. And all the, the enormous extra costs in terms of pensions because people are pensioned off sick. You know, I, as a, I was, a, you know, I was running depression clinics back in Bristol in the 1990s when they changed the, uh, the pension uh, rules for teachers. So many teachers went off sick without even being treated for depression because because that, that was we incentivized people to get out of the workplace because they were mentally ill and and we've lost an enormous resource there so so governments know the economic value of mental of mental wellness it's yeah. just that they won't invest in it because they don't see it's an immediate return and it's not a vote winger for some reason i know sadly but, but i think that's changing that's changed a bit in the last 20 years but not enough so so on that note then so david Two last quick questions then, just to bring us to our close, just something completely different. So just reflecting then on your, obviously, career and then looking backwards, what advice would you give your 16-year-old your self? Oh, be, di be more diplomatic. Be a bit less abrasive, I think. <laughs> <laughs> uh, maybe a bit more targeted. I don't, yeah, no. But, um, well, I think, yeah. Uh, no, I don't, yes, I think I kind of did all right. Uh, <laughs> I'm not quite, but maybe maybe a little bit more tactful at some points might have. Oh, I'll give you one. I'll give everyone one really important piece of advice. One of the most near near misses in my career, which I didn't learn about till afterwards, was making a joke 
in a job interview, which went down apparently very, very badly and almost lost me the job. I only learned about it when I was leaving the job six months later. Good advice, good advice, good advice. Never, that's right. Doctors don't have much of a sense of humour, actually. (laughs) And then the last question, the last question is, so if you had the choice of um, inviting or having coffee or dinner with one or two people, living or dead, who would you, and you haven't had that opportunity thus far, who would they be? Oh, that's a very interesting question. Yeah, I think I'd quite like to resurrect Crick so we could have a sensible discussion with him about uh, about how it, why he went to America. I mean, the rumour is he went to America because the police, after we made LSD illegal in 68, the police started coming around to his house, which, of course, they could identify quite well because he stuck a great golden helix outside and uh, and they told him he had to stop stop having these parties so i quite i'd like to speak to crick about what you know because i like to share with him our insights into the brain which i think yeah. he, he would find very appealing uh, and i think I've, well yes it'd have to be aldo suxley wouldn't it because i mean sure. you know both a genius and a visionary and a man who in his book island is it wife you know his the, his last book island is a really brilliant uh expert exposition is how you can actually use a combination of therapies not just psychedelics but also dance therapy psychological therapy social therapy to actually make a better society and uh, yeah that, that would be a really rather interesting dinner party wouldn't it yeah it'd be a great dinner party and on that note a great uh, ending on a, a, a huxley as a dinner party is a great way to end so on behalf of Craig and I and MQ, David, thanks so much for taking the time to join us today. And let's see where we are in five or 10 years to see whether your your prediction comes true about the centrality of psychedelics transforming mental health treatment. So thank you so much. Well, I hope I'm alive to see it. But if not, will you raise a glass to me, Rory? I will indeed. I will indeed. MQ Open Mind is presented by MQ Mental Health Research the only organization that exclusively invests into scientific research around mental health. Our vision is to create a world where mental illnesses are understood, effectively treated, and one day prevented. Please leave us a review and let us know what you think about the podcast. Each review helps us reach a wider audience. Visit mqmentalhealth.org to learn more about MQ and mental health research.